Acordadores. A dedicated dad and long-distance parent, I'm raising two boys in two countries, and in each episode, I invite another dad to join me in a podcast adventure to talk about our journey as parents. We will discuss the messiness of modern dadding and the challenges of long-distance parenting. At the end of each episode, I will be checking in with psychologist and fellow dad Todd Kettner as he shares his insights into parenthood. My name is Blue, and I am a Dad Without Borders. Hi guys, and welcome back to Dad Without Borders. And today, I have a really great episode for you. It's with Sean Larson. Sean has a PhD in counseling psychology. He also has a master's in, I don't know the exact title, but in uh, Fathers in the Military. So he's done a ton of homework on this topic of being a dad. And so we really get into it. Uh, he's got some really great stuff to share. We talk about many different things, including, uh, as well as reflecting on just being a father, we talk about male sexuality as a dad. We talk about, which is fascinating actually, fatherhood through the ages. We talk about the masculine and feminine roles in raising a kid and the neurochemical reactions that we have to kids, like how oxytocin is released uh, in our bodies as a reward for being a dad, which I thought was fascinating. Um, Makes a lot of sense around why I love going to the skate park with my boys. And I'm really glad that Sean is going to be coming back on a regular basis uh, to join the inner circle of Dab Without Borders, uh, just as Todd Kettner does as well. And Catherine Williams, I'm hoping, will come back in the next few weeks here. Uh, but yeah, really nice to have him coming and offering his wisdom and his ton of knowledge in this area. Um, so as ever, please enjoy. Sean, thank you so much for taking the time today to chat. I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, knowing that you have a lot of, yeah, a background with particularly the dissertation, which I'm excited to talk to you about. Um, but let's start with just the basics. Could you just introduce yourself to the listener in terms of your family, um, you know, where, what stage you are at in your parenting and what you do for work? Sure. So, yeah, my name's uh, Sean Larson. Um, uh, in my 40s here now, um, I have a nine-year-old son and an 11-year-old daughter. Um, I've spent most of my adult life, it feels, as a student or um, in and out of school. It took a lot longer to finish my PhD than I was hoping, but I mean, that's also at the same time as doing it. I was also working full-time and trying to parent as well as I could. And then also um, had a few other projects uh, like working with um, a help start that uh, kids help phone um, crisis text line service. Uh, so I was, I was working with that a fair bit too over the last few years. And so I've had a lot going on. Um, so it took me a while to finish my PhD. So a lot of my parenting is in the context of someone trying to juggle a number of different balls at the same time. That's huge. Um, and so what do you do for work on a regular day to day? Are you, is it counseling or do I, would you technically? Yeah. And so counselor? I won't, yeah. And so I won't, um, 
so I won't talk about my employer at all, just because um, I work for a larger organization and, and um, there's always a risk of people assuming I'm speaking on behalf of them, which, which in, you know, the context of this, I'm not, but it's just easier to not mention, you know, yeah, where I work, 100%. but I, I do child and family psychotherapy. Uh, essentially it's very clinical stuff. Like we're focused on um, disorders that previously would have been access one disorders in the DSM. So, you know, I suppose my, you know, we joke about it a bit at work that anxiety is our easy stuff. Like if we could take anxiety cases all day, uh, we would because we get really good results, especially with kids working with anxiety. It's one of those funny areas that it's such a problem in society, I think. But I mean, the research is there and the understanding of how to manage it is there. It's just baffling to me that it's not um, flooded out because you know, when I, when I take on most anxiety cases, it's, we usually have pretty good outcomes fairly quick. Maybe social anxiety for teenagers is a little more challenging just because it, it runs parallel to their drives at that age. So clearly, um, yeah, so I work in psychotherapy with um, children and families, and I've done that now for, I don't know, uh, probably 12 or 13 years. Within that, I've also had a focus on adolescent suicide and managing adolescent suicide risk, which is part of what tied into my work with uh, Crisis Text Line. Um, and that's something that uh, I've worked really hard at organizing information and helping people do a better job at, at assessing that suicide risk. And what is um, Crisis Text Line? Because that's actually the first time I've heard about it. Could you just share like how, is that a Canadian wide thing? Is it a provincial? Yeah, I could do a brief like, ad blurb for it but um yeah sure. crisis text line so it was a service provided in the states it was a text service um for people in crisis and so they managed a lot of suicide risk and then um it was rolled out in canada about uh when was it it would have been i believe february for like three and a half years ago it was rolled out um and it's been nationwide now for probably um yeah, almost three years, it's probably been nationwide. And so it's 24 hours a day a free text service where even though the service is geared towards um, children and youth, um, because it is a kids help phone service, um, anyone can text in. All right, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I genuinely didn't, didn't, hadn't heard of that before. So just interesting for any listeners that might, you know, might be useful information. Um, yeah, just text home to 686868. That was good. That was very natural. There go. Yeah. There's, there's, there's the radio ad. Um, and so moving on from, from the work that you've been, that you were doing, you've now got a PhD in counseling psychology and your yeah. dissertation was, well, if you could introduce your dissertation, I'm going to have a lot of questions based around that. Um, but yeah, what was the, just give us the quick, the ad blurb, I get, I guess the overview of what that was about. Yeah, well, and we could step back to my master's too on that one, because um, my project for my master's years ago, um, it, it was also looking at fatherhood and, and specifically it was looking at um, ex-military um, fathers uh, and how they experienced their fatherhood uh, throughout their, their time in the military. And then one of the key themes around that became work-related absences and um, you know, what did that look like for fathers who are trying to connect uh, with their kids? And so um, 
from that, there were a lot of questions I had around fatherhood and what does it mean to be a father? Because a lot of those definitions, especially for people who have had to take, I guess, um, a bit of a divergent role in fatherhood in that, you know, a lot of fathers in the military, their commitment to the country and to the safety of the country, um, it, it comes first, which obviously I'm really grateful for uh, as a Canadian, Canadian citizen. But because of that, I think you have to then redefine, like, what does it mean for me to be a father so that you can create a, a positive meaning in it for yourself, right? And so for a lot of those fathers, it was, it was more of these classic definitions of fatherhood where it was, um, you know, my role is to, to provide protect on like a bigger scale, right? They're protecting the country, but also their family and then to provide. Um, and so all that work looking at fatherhood got me more curious about the transition to fatherhood. And then that was something I wanted to, to research, but that's just too broad of a topic um, to study for a PhD. And so as I was doing a lot of the lit reviewing of that, I was most of, especially the narrative research that I was reading there was this talk about masculinity that kept showing up and showing up and showing up, but never directly asked to fathers. And so that was what I wanted to take on. And that's what I ended up taking on is what, what does masculinity look like for fathers in their transition to fatherhood? Uh, just because just based on the research, it looked like it was an area that had a lot of conflict and, and was going to be super interesting. And it was. Yeah, no doubt. So, so what's the title of it? Just in a nutshell, what's the nutshell title? I think I have it somewhere. So my the title is On Becoming a Father and Being a Man, a Narrative Exploration of the Experience of Masculinity in the Transition to Fatherhood. Yeah, that's the dissertation title. Gotcha. So let's start with you as a father then. Because I'm interested to know, like, what was the transition to fatherhood for you? Because how are you would have been 30-ish, around 20, yeah, just, 29, 30? Yeah, just approaching uh, late 20s, coming into my 30s there. Um, yeah, I would have been 28, uh, just about to turn 29 when my daughter was born, I think, if the math is right, because she's about to turn 12 here. Um, yeah, and I'd always wanted to be a father, uh, we, we were a little, I suppose, based on the way that the culture looked for me growing up, I feel we were a little slow and uh, hesitant moving towards parenthood. But part of that was probably because, because of the culture. So I grew up uh, Mormon, so grew up in this fairly insular um, religious group um, where people tend to get married quite young and then have children quite young. And so all around me, like my friends were mostly married by the time I was 22 or 23. And um, my partner and I, uh, we, we were married at 23. And then, so for a lot of young people, especially in that religion, you're married and then you have kids like the next year. But I, I was someone who kind of had my foot out the door of that for a long time, just perhaps because of the way that my brain works and it, it, it was never a great fit for me. And this actually, this is going to tie in a lot to my story of fatherhood here and that we were kind of half in half out of it. Um, mentally, I had checked out a long time ago. I just had a hard time personally believing a lot of um, what was taught within that church. And so um, we had, we had our daughter, I'll just tell the story of how I left, I suppose, because that ties in a lot to my 
transition to fatherhood. And I actually think I mentioned it in my, my research a little bit, but so we had my daughter and it was a few months after she was born, I was walking with her on this beach in Victoria. We were living in Victoria at the time. And uh, I remember we're walking along this beach uh, and, and I make some kind of a facial expression. And, and as I do it, uh, she mirrors the facial expression that I make. And, and just in that moment, I was just struck with the thought of like, man, everything I do is gonna impact uh, every moment of this child's life, like who they become, what they are. Like I have, I have so much of a potential to influence um, this child and just like the gravity of it terrified me. Like I just felt overwhelmed with anxiety, but then it was like this really crystal clear of like, I just wanna be really honest with who I am then. Because I think back to all the stuff that I worried about around my own um, parents and, and I just wanted to be really transparent and live a life that I felt really honest and, and clear with. Uh, and so in that moment, I was like, yeah, we're done with that. And I, I remember going home um, from it and having a, this tons of anxiety, like that day, like I went home and just when I walked in the door, I was like, hey, so um, I'm never going back to church and I haven't believed in it for years and I'm not interested in ever associating with that ever again. Uh, and, you know, luckily I, I had a pretty strong relationship with my partner and she knows the way my brain works. And she was like, well, okay, if that's what you believe, then okay. <laughs> and so we laughed, like that was it. Um, and so, yeah, I think my daughter had a big part of it, which again comes into the research, right? Because there's this realization and, and lots of fathers talked about it that, uh, and a lot, a lot that follows it, that you're no longer living for yourself, which there's so much of kind of living for yourself and do your thing and uh, in masculinity, right? And then becoming a parent, all of a sudden, it's like, man, it's not just me anymore. And, and I have to make decisions based on that. Because I, I honestly feel like if it was just me to maintain my other broader family relationships and peer groups, because that's, that's another topic is leaving like a fundamentalist religion because it's not just like oh i believe something different now it's like okay cool i now have to give up um every social tie essentially and, and every connection i've had and, and just basic routines and ways of understanding the world and just go off into the desert so to speak yeah um, wow. right and shedding so, shedding your family as well as that happens or are they still in your life and supportive oh they're they are but it's interesting it changes everything right because now all of a sudden you're I mean, to believe and then not believe is like, it, and everyone's nice about it. And they're like, well, we love you for who you are. And it's like, man, stop saying that. Like, <laughs> like I know you're saying that, but it just sounds like now you're trying to help me. Like, <laughs> but all, yeah, all of that, leaving that the church and that um, came, I think directly. And it was so easy because of that, because of this new role of, of, being a father it was like well I just can't do that like I just can't be part of something like that and it it's really like even around like my own morality I think like becoming a father was like well I I want to show my kids a different thing about how to live a life that you know I feel is really rewarding and also honest with myself because that's something I was worried about myself was like you know not being true to true to who I was or like you know, I was like a, a scratch DJ for a number of years and like really into like hip hop as a teenager. And so there was always like, be real. Like, <laughs> so I was always <laughs> like, well, just being honest and authentic, which is so funny, right? Like, a, you know, a white privileged kid from Canada trying to adopt a be real mentality whilst listening to hip hop, which came out of urban struggles and marginalized 
groups. That- you know, but I just want to share this really briefly. Um, the, how interesting is that you identified that as a dad, that you wanted to be, be real for the kids and to kind of live your authentic life. Because actually, I think in both ways, to have a softer approach to my first boy who lives in the UK, his mum. Like, so she's living her authentic life there. And that's why she wanted to go back to that country is to, to follow, you know, the passions and the things that interested her. And the, one of the reasons I stayed here, apart from the fact that I repartnered and had another child, pretty big things, um, and also had a job and property and that stuff. But it's like, this is the lifestyle. And you know it very well because you live in this area. But this is the lifestyle and the kind of wholesome life that I want him to experience. So by me maintaining this lifestyle here, he gets access to that on a regular basis. So he can see me living my truth in a way, you know? So I think it's interesting what you say, because I hadn't really thought about it that way in terms of, um, yeah, and just the, seeing, seeing my life in that way and how it was going to influence my kid. Yeah, it's, it's also kind of a funny thing, right? When you look at generationally, right? Because, you know, I, I've chosen to, do, to live a very different life than you know, my parents chose to live. And, and I think, I don't know, I've always questioned, I won't get into whether or not I think my parents lived their truth. That's not probably fair for them to totally air out, but let's say they were, um, and I chose to do this, that's okay. And I, I, I often think of that as it relates to my kids too, because what would I identify as being rewarding and meaningful and bringing me joy? And, and you get into this pretty quick in parenting, right? As you realize that, well, maybe my kids are going to find different things that are meaningful and that's going to be okay. But I think that's always that parent struggle of, you know, and you see this area is pretty intense with this outdoor recreation, right? And see some kids that are like, well, you're going to be really good at these outdoor sports. Um, And and I often wonder, like working in the the job that I do all the time, because I've, I've worked with some families where it's like, well, that's just not them. And even within my own family, it's had to be like, yeah, like this, for me when I'm feeling overwhelmed like I need to go ride my bike for sure uh or or ski uh but that's not going to be the case and probably not for my daughter I don't know about my son yet but I just want them to feel flexible enough to find their own meaning and I think that's that's a bit of being a flexible parent too right yeah but and I think too though for them to see their parent like thriving in the lifestyle that they've chosen and following the passions that like really make them come alive I think as long as you teach them that it doesn't have to be the same for them, at least if they see that in their parent, I think that would be, that's got to be a good thing. Right. Oh, it's, I think it's huge. And it, it speaks to like so much of the work I do with families seems to be, there are a lot of parents that really want their kids to have a better experience than them. And, And sometimes to the point where it's like, they, they have been on say antidepressant medications for their whole life. And they're like, make my kid happy. Uh, And it's like, but, but that's going to be really challenging because I don't think you're happy. And I don't think you found what that means for you. And often I think that, you know, we often use that get your own air before putting an air mask on someone else airplane metaphor. But I think more broadly than that, I think the best gift you can show kids is to live a a meaningful life and not just a meaningful life until you have kids, but a a meaningful and rewarding life um, the whole way through, which is, I know it's obviously a balance because you know, I grew up around mountain cultures too. And there's anyone who's grown up around mountain cultures can name a number of people whose personal passions uh, took took priority over their parenting responsibilities and it had negative consequences, which is always a huge fear for me. 
you know, when I ask for say a week, a week off to go on a big bike ride or something like that, I know that's the huge thing. And so it's always balanced. Right. Yeah. And it's tough. And I think, well, I feel like balance is such a, yeah, big part of it. Cause like even a lot of the dads I speak to the one area often that does kind of fall down is the relationship with their partner. Um, it's been a bit of a theme actually. It's like, dads are so focused now almost swung the other way from being the breadwinner and they may still be the breadwinner in part but it's often shared now and then they're sort of charging into you know their career and then being the best parent and then they completely forget to nurture and maintain you know what brought the the child along in the first place and that kind of that foundation we're really conscious of it here. So that's why we did a big bike ride yesterday together just to get out. Cause we don't make, we often do miss that because just life's so busy and that balance is so important, which would bring well, me. I think it's, Go on. Uh, it's such a hard thing though, the, the relationship piece. Cause I, you know, I think there's so many factors converging there where I think as a society, we have such a poor understanding of re- relationships, right? Like if you buy into like the cold play, narrative of love or whatever or this cultural like passive view of love where like I'm in love because you're beautiful and I have all these feelings when you're around like that I mean that's not substantial enough to last and it's definitely not substantial enough to last say over decades where I talking with with my wife like you know we got married at 23 while we were part of a a fundamentalist religion and who who we were then is so dramatically different to who we are now. Like we, we essentially didn't marry each other as we are today. Like we married totally different people. And so there's, you know, as you move through life, there's this constant redefining of, of who you are as a person and what's meaningful to you. And, and, you know, I wish people were more open to that rather than this idea of like, well, we're just in love. So we're going to be in love forever. Cause that's what Disney and Coldplay told yeah. me. Right. Yeah. It, it's hard right because you have to I think sometimes people have those sad talks where they're like what's meaningful to me um, feels like it's not meaningful for you anymore and that's okay because you need to do what's important for you but then it's got to juggle it around parenting and, and everything else like so it's how have you yeah, managed it, that then like how what's been do you have any like what's what's work for you um you know it's it's always an ongoing um struggle in conversation but I think my goal personally is to be as honest and open as I am with who I am and what I would like out of a relationship and then be flexible with with what because you know also you get into a relationship um, and, and it's almost I mean looking back at it now from as a parent like you're so focused on yourself prior to to having kids and, and relationships are like, what do, what do I want and how do I meet my needs? And, and, you know, in some cases it's like pray, pray to the altar of what we'll just both continually pray to the altars of who we are singular. And then, you know, it's a bit of a rude awakening when you, when you have kids and all of a sudden now so much of that attention that used to be on, on you or on them now has to be spread around a little bit more, uh, not just because of direct caregiving, but because of responsibilities and families and shifting priorities and all the stuff that comes with lives and mortgages and whatever else you take on uh, to have a safe and happy family. And um, so, so it can be, I think, a real shock to the ego sometimes that if you're not, if you're not able to be flexible with that, 
I, I think a lot of couples probably in that first five years of um, parenting, they, it's there's so much redefining that happens that a lot probably honestly say, you know, you as a single person loved, you as a parent, you're probably a great parent, but that's not what I was looking for. So Interesting. Uh, other sides yeah. of you have come out. Yeah. yeah. We're not just purely sexual objects to each other anymore, whatever it was. That's true. And I think as well as you're saying that, I'm like in the early, in the zero to five, for sure. I feel like on a personal level, it's often fighting for that time to do the me stuff. Not, do you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, how can I carve out in this week time for me to go and skateboard or bike or ski or climb, whatever. The last thing I'm thinking is how can we carve out time together? It's almost like, and I think both of us feel that a bit. We need that time to do our things. And then we often forget. Yeah. Anyway, it's like, it's a process for sure. And I don't know. Yeah. I think finding the balance is hard, but I think, you know what, you said it already, I think, but communication is so important. And actually reaching out, we've been to counselor before, not because there was anything terribly wrong, but it's just nice to have that support. And so we've both done that separately on our own. And sometimes it's about parenting. You know, I'll go to, and I've said it a bunch before, Catherine Williams, who's been on the show to talk about secure attachment or just like, it's always a parenting thing. It's not a relationship thing, but even that, just having some outside professional input, I find is really good. And then just being really honest about your needs and where you're at and like, if yeah, you and vulnerable. Right. And I, I think being vulnerable and, and open and especially for men, um, it being open about your needs and honest about your needs and honest about where, where you feel hurt. I don't think as, as men, we're very good at talking about, you know, either what we're hurt or what we're afraid of right like there's no part in in die hard or in any traditionally like masculine movie where like the the lead character ever sits down uh in his iconic masculine role and says like god i just feel so sad for all the lives lost um and for the cost that this is going to take on my family and the economy uh or i just feel so scared it's always just like you know yippee yippee kaye uh mother effort like anger and like protective like instrumental anger because as men we're not supposed to be fragile and vulnerable but i but i think that kills probably a lot of relationships because i don't think you can be honest and i don't think you can be open without a bit of that vulnerability and and transparency yeah totally um which brings a good segue actually into one of the things that i've been reading in your dissertation which is like the traditional role of the man in the household has been really the man is the provider, provides the resources, as you put it. Um, and you were saying that there's like a, a bit of a push and pull between that sort of new nurturing style of, you know, being a man, being in the household and, you know, spending more time with the kid, nurturing them and, and all the rest of it. Um, the push and pull between that and this old style of being masculine and what that what it means, kind of what you just explained in the Die Hard movies and that kind of classic stereotype that we're just blasted with in Netflix and anywhere else that we see it. Um, so yeah, I'm just kind of just interested if you to explain like what what is that push and pull? Like why is there that push and pull? What's going on there? Yeah, well, and it brings up all sorts of interesting questions around. You know, I think we we talk about we'll be a man uh, or or be a father. And we just assume that these are these, you know, these traits that have just been stable and existed uh, like this natural structure that we just 
gravitate back towards. And, you know, it's interesting when you look at research on like historic fatherhoods and historic masculinities, but historic fatherhoods especially is that uh, throughout history, uh, what it meant to be a good father in society was really influenced um, by the times, right? Like prior to the industrial revolution, uh, it was very common for fathers uh, to be at home all day. And, and because of that, when you look back at writings from those earlier periods prior to the industrial revolution, um, you see that fathers were in the home a lot and they were doing a lot of direct care. They were more responsible for say teaching and, and teaching and nurturing children um, than they were after. And then with the industrial revolution, all of a sudden labor was moved off of like the homestead and out of the home or out of your small plot of, plot of land. And now it's moved into factories and into cities and into major urban settlements. And, and so we needed people to go do that. And so all of a sudden it was like, well, men are gonna be the people to go do that. So men, you, you now leave the homes, uh, give that control, um, give that kind of domestic uh, power now over to, to partners and to wives. Um, and your job is now outside of the home. And obviously there was always still a part of that, right? If people needed to go fight wars, men were typically responsible to head off and fight wars. Or if somebody was gonna go trade between nations, that was gonna be a man's job. But it was, it was still pretty common for men to be at home. And then after the industrial revolution, it was a man's job to go to the, to the factories and to work and to produce goods and to earn money for the family. Um, and, and then even, um, so that leads, there's kind of four phases it looks like of fatherhoods throughout history. And these are defined by, by researchers like uh, Plack and, and uh, Michael Lamb um, and Cabrera. And uh, so, We've got, you know, this early fatherhood where men's kind of the, the moral guide and the teacher. There was a lot of religious, like post or pre-industrial revolution, a lot of kind of religion uh, where father was the religious head of the household. And then industrial revolution comes and it's now men's job to work, right? To, to leave the home to work, to earn money. And then this next phase was really interesting. Um, and it came after uh, First World War um, and then carried on to Second World War where uh, all of a sudden there's this big international threat and where, you know, we'd kind of lived relatively safe lives, especially in the Western world. All of a sudden there was this perceived threat and there was this huge fear that like, well, men, Men, boys aren't growing up strong enough to be able to fight off that threat. And it's probably because they're spending all their time home with their mothers, right? And there's lots of kind of anecdotes towards this. Well, well, men need to show boys how to be men. And I think a lot of our ideas of like what it means to be a man comes from this kind of post-war era where, you know, you need to be able to protect and strong and, and uh, autonomous uh, and functional um, so that if you get called on to, to do this major, which obviously ties into that earlier research I did with my master's. And so there was this father as gender role model, right? And this is actually also uh, the era, era where we see a lot of like homophobia uh, emerging within society uh, because all of a sudden to be less than a man based on this new definition at that time was to be dangerous, essentially. Like if you're not manly enough, you're not able to protect us and you're not strong enough to be, you know, at the, at the time, like a good American or a good Canadian. Was, there's a lot of nationalism tied into being a strong man and to raising boys then that were strong men too. And so a lot of this really kind of locked into like hegemonic masculinities at the time. And hege hegemonic is a, a funny word. Um, 
when people use it uh, all the time um, popularly because hegemonics often used um, I think incorrectly whereas the term itself ju just means that it's a dominant social system and, and obviously because I think masculinity there have been some negatives identified in terms of what that's done around its dominance especially when you look at like me too and some of the harm that comes from uh, some of the negative aspects of masculinity and the harm they've caused now I think people just talk use the word hegemonic as so it refers to you know ne negative things that men do sometimes I almost hear it used in that sense where it really just refers to a dominant way of doing things socially so when we talk about hegemonic masculinity we're talking about what did it mean to be a good man in society and there's no one good way to do that um, but there were ways that were perceived to be better than other ways to do that right and that was being strong being uh, able to fight uh, not being afraid right a lot of these ideas came out of that post-war and then it wasn't until the 80s um, where this new fatherhood uh, started to emerge in this, I mean, you can guess in the 80s, like what were some of the key socio-political driving forces, but there was also in the 70s, you saw a lot of women going back to the workforce and you saw a lot of this uh, modern feminism taking route uh, and redefining roles, um, which you can't just change um, one half of that feminine masculine without then needing to adjust the other half of it too. And so I think this new fatherhood emerged where men were expected uh, now to be more present in the home, more available for domestic tasks, uh, more nurturing and caring with children and more emotional. And so that shows up in research, at least, I think Pleck was one of the first to talk about it. And he started talking about that in, in about the mid eighties. And then certainly in the early 2000s, um, when, when Michael Lamb and Cabrera and some of these newer fatherhood researchers came in, it was a fairly dominant theme amongst fathers. When you talk to fathers, they were saying, well, fatherhood has changed. And that, that certainly came up in my research too, in that um, all, all the fathers I talked to said that fatherhood for them looked different than fatherhood looked for their fathers. And they also interestingly identified that fatherhood for their fathers looked different than fatherhood for their grandfathers uh, looked and that, you know, it's, it seemed like, you know, their dads tried to do things a little bit differently and they're trying to step it even further for, for most of them anyways. So do you, can you identify that as being like the gen X's generation X? Do you think that's when that shifted from the baby boomers? Yeah. And, and so, you know, obviously I think, I think Gen Xers would be kind of that first maybe generation of fathers coming into to that. But I think it, it would have been their parents that influenced some of those ideas shifting too. Um, right. Well, and it's important to, to distinguish too that we're, we're more talking about a, a social ideal, like an idea um, and a, a belief and not, not always so much a practical thing. And that's one of the things that came up a lot in my research and I've seen in a lot of other researches, you know, it, even if the, the hegemonic or dominant fatherhood at the moment is pointing towards this more nurturing, that doesn't mean that it's even possible for some fathers in society to do, or, or certainly not that it's easy um, or, or that it's something that even within ourselves and when we're identifying, what does it mean to be a man? I think oftentimes, you know, at, at the edge, uh, like the lip service side of it is like, well, yeah, absolutely. I totally want to be more engaged. Um, but there's a lot of research showing that um, 
just because that's the idea or the ideal uh, doesn't necessarily mean that it's what's happening across the, the world. Totally. Yeah, it was interesting that you say that because, <clears throat> yeah, I, that's why I've been wondering, too, with going through the a custody battle that I, you know, and I try not to go into the dark. It's a bit of a big, big dark hole to kind of go in and into that kind of experience that I had. But I would say that I was hearing from everybody around me that it's 50-50. The man and the mom, it's 50-50. Because I remember struggling as a, as a dad, not really knowing who I was. I was like, well, I want to be around for my kid, but I've got to be the main breadwinner because that was practically what we were doing then. And yeah, I really struggled with it. I didn't know how society was. I felt really um, conscious of people almost looking at me when I was in public with my kid, not knowing how I should be seen. Should I be carrying the kid? Should I be feeding the kid with a bottle? Should I be, I, yeah, I don't know. I just, I didn't know how to be. And I was really stressed with that, but I couldn't, if I'd been talking to you at the time, it probably would have helped. Like, cause I just didn't, I didn't understand. I wasn't reading books. I didn't know any of the theory about any of this stuff of how society sees men and how we feel about being a man and all the rest of it. No idea. So I was being told all the time that, you know, you're 50, 50, like very much. So I'm my question, actually, because I know some dads listening to this would be interested to know, like, where are we at now then in terms of like seeing the dad as the nurturer? Where is it in society? Where is it in the professions of the counselors and the psychologists? And where is it in the courts? Like, where is that? I'm kind of interested because I think there's probably some overlap. And in some cases, there's probably some resistance maybe in the courts to be seeing men in that way. Yeah, it, it... Like I think in a statistical sense, like we have seen huge increases over the last 30 years in, in father involvement, but, but we're also talking about like, in some cases it increases from uh, very little, uh, you know, kind of domestic involvement initially, uh, it, which, you know, are still ideals that, that show up. Like I remember when, I, when my daughter was just born, she was probably like six months old uh, and I'm, I'm sitting in a, I'm sitting in a, a grocery store line, uh, just me and my daughter, and she's in a, a baby Bjorn on my chest. Uh, and I'm just kind of holding a few items and this um, older woman in front of me turns around and she's like, oh, it is so nice uh, to see such a good father. And, and I was, I was thinking, I was like, I'm like, I'm literally doing nothing. Like there's, there's fabric is actually doing all the work holding this child up like the the only thing I'm doing here is like not actively like harming my child and so like what was your bar where you turned around and you just see a man allowing fabric to bear the weight of their child and not harming them and you're like that's a good dad like that like I think ideas like that still really scare me because what what would it take um for a woman then to have somebody turn around and be like what a good mother, right? That is Certainly so not just true. standing there with a Bjorn, right? Which like the ideas for it are crazy in, in some cases. Sorry, go ahead. I, I was going to say, I just, as soon as you said that, I remember um, it really sticks in my mind. My first boy, he must've been, he was young. He was a baby. So he's like maybe two months. He's a few weeks, two months, whatever. Um, and we're in a restaurant in Nelson and um, we're having some food with somebody else, probably the grandparents. Um, and I picked the baby up and I was just doing that kind of classic thing, the rocking. You know, when you have a baby and you just can't stop rocking, even when you don't have the baby. I was kind of doing yeah. that thing with the baby. It wasn't much. I just picked, picked the baby up, soothe, was soothing by movement. And there was a woman a few tables away who um, 
it was wasn't many people in the restaurant and she made a point like out loud like that's a good dad right there you're 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 lucky to the mum kind of thing i'm like and i really remember thinking like that's really strange reaction like i really don't think i'm doing much in this moment why is she making kind of a in front of every you know in, in a public arena making a point like pointing the finger at me i mean yeah it's nice i'm being a good dad but i really wasn't doing anything and I just thought it was weird that it, and that was part of my, I think, subconscious trying to figure out who am I as a dad? Like, I'm sure I meant to do this, but the fact that someone's making a point of it in public. Yes, yeah, I think it just illustrates that, like the, the difference sometimes between idea and reality, right? Because this, you know, this more of, you know, both doing equal part, like I, I think that shows up, that's how some men interpret this, this new nurture and fatherhood, but certainly when you look at the research on it. I mean, that's not the case. Like uh, even across Canadian research, um, women are still doing far more of that primary caring and domestic work, e- even when they are back in the in the workforce as well. Like I, up to like even like two thirds or so to a third is is like a pretty. Uh, that would be a pretty good father based on kind of the research if it was split two thirds to a third of like more of that domestic nurturing. Right. Um, yeah work but and that's certainly not to that's certainly not to uh, say that it doesn't exist because there there are I think with this changing fatherhood it does give a lot of men uh, different opportunities in how to parent I know in our area uh, we do see a lot of males as as primary caregivers which is really cool to see I, I would I would throw in a comment here too though uh, that there's a certain degree of privilege to that. And I I don't want to say this to any father who's really financially struggling, uh, who's in a different situation, who's like, oh, man, but I that I'm not somebody who's got a ton of privilege with that. But just across the general, um, say, research looking at it, uh, you find far less of that when you look at marginalized populations, lower income populations, younger fathers, like there's far less of that flexibility then uh, to be father is as primary caregiver because I think society is often far more set up uh, and comfortable with supporting uh, a, a more feminine care system right the most important thing how does it impact the kids I mean you work with teenagers you work with young people D- is it being shown that having an engaged and nurturing father in a child's life is less likely for that kid to have issues down the road with substance abuse feelings of suicide. Um, and obviously that would be a very complex situation, but how important is that father in those cases? Yeah, totally, totally. Um, it, I mean, it's interesting too, um, because I think if we just say, well, both parents are now doing their thing um, and, and it's kind of equal, but, but like qualitatively equal, not just like you look at the previous, like, um, involvement studies and that a lot of that was time cards, right? It was like saying like, how much time do you spend with the child? There wasn't much of this qualitative look of, um, what, what do parents, um, provide to children? And there's this, so there's this interesting bit of research looking at, um, men's brains, uh, early in their transition to fatherhood and even men's brains say when they get in a domestic partnership and some of the shifts that happen in men's brains uh, around um, 
some of these neurotransmitters uh, in their brains, which which you know push us towards these directed behaviors. And so it so in men, it's it's interesting. Just as an example, so for women, uh, there's this experience, right? Say when you're breastfeeding or when you're nurturing and just holding and and uh, calming your child, and you gaze into their eyes, uh, and then you're just overwhelmed with this feeling of like, man, this kid is the greatest thing in the universe. There's never been a greater thing created ever. Like, I love this child so much. I almost want to take a bite out, bite out of it because I don't know what to do with this drive towards this child in this moment, right? And and so that's a very uh, feminine system. And that happens because there's this uh, system in, in mother's brains where oxytocin is starting to flood their body in those moments uh, that, that's triggered by these cues in the environment, that's triggered by smells, by scents, by all of that plays into this picture that then releases oxytocin. And they're like, man, I love this child so much. Um, and for fathers, you see a similar response, but at totally different times right and so so where mothers are, are sitting there and holding the child and they're calming they're slowing down that nervous system together and then there's this release uh, of, of neurotransmitters that are saying this is so great we should do more of this this is amazing right and anytime like you feel really happy about something in life if you want to get really reductionist about it it's usually your brain saying hey this is super good for yourself or your species you should keep doing this um for fathers, where you see that huge oxytocin release in your brain is when you're doing something exciting with your child, right? And so these are those moments like early in your kid's life, like you're chasing them around, tickling them, or you're like throwing them in the air. And all of a sudden you just get this like flood of emotion where you're like, oh my God, honey, did you realize how great this child was? Like, man, they're so freaking cool. Like, I love this kid so much. And it's when you're doing something exciting. And it's like, you know, that example of it, um, at any like family picnic ever where people have babies, like you will typically see a gender split in what they're doing with the kid. Whereas like, I remember like, you know, when you learn that your kid will stand up really straight uh, vertically, there's always this like balancing them on your hand thing that dads do. And you're like, well, let's see how long we can hold this. And you're like showing other dads, you're like, check this out. Or you're like throwing your kid in the air as high as you like they're, that's a pretty masculine thing. And I, I think throughout the ages, mothers have just been like, what, why the hell are you throwing what are that you child doing? in the air? <laughs> like there's, why are we adding risk to this? Uh, and as a father, you're like, I don't know. It just feels really good. Like I'm going to throw this baby <laughs> in the air and then we're going to look at each other and they're going to laugh. And I'm just going to feel so positive about this relationship. And, and I think, you know, using that as an example, I, I think it speaks to, um, kind of this interesting circle that that nature's uh, kind of built for us where if and there's huge variation within how e each partner does this and I've seen relationships where that roles are reversed and it seems like there's a reward for each and certainly when you look at um, say LGBTQ couples there's also emerging research looking at those populations saying well it doesn't mean you're just going to both be on one side one parent is now going to kind of have a different response uh, neurochemically to how you interact with the child. Kind of this, this two-parent system where, where one seems to be a little bit more primed um, to push that. And so when we talk about this ties into attachment actually, because at its core, when you, when you go back to say Mary Ainsworth 
model of attachment and secure base, which is moving forward nowadays to like circle of security, where this primary model of attachment is, you know, being able to push the child to, to experience and to be excited and to move that circle a little bit bigger, but then also being nurturing and safe and available for that child then to return to you, there's almost this like natural uh, semi-gendered system in place um, where, you know, fathers get literally that oxytocin reward for pushing that top half of that circle of pushing kids out to explore to navigate the world. Um, whereas it seems like the biological system on the feminine side is more primed for that same release, but in those moments where you're calming together, right? And where uh, you're suppressing yeah, yeah, that yeah. system, which is kind of a perfect natural play. And so I think, you know, one of the challenges sometimes for single parent scenarios or, or for absent father scenarios um, can be creating that system where you have both. But that, that doesn't mean that there aren't parents who are able to do both phenomenally. And it doesn't mean that there are two parent systems who aren't able to do both right. at all, right? It's just kind of, if you look at kind of the basic biology, there's, there can be a little bit there. Right. No, that's a good. Yeah, it's a really good point. I think with the LGBTQ parents as well, that it isn't necessarily about the male figure, or could be the male figure, or two male figures. But um, what I really relate to what you just said, though, is I often say it like I never really feel like a parent until the kid's like a year, eighteen months, even. You know, because I don't know. I just not that that attachment for me generally develops a little bit later. And I think it's for the reasons you exactly um, just outlined and particularly the holding the kid on the, on your hand when they can stand straight with grandma in the background going, what are you doing? Stop that immediately. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. So, so how does that nurturing as a dad, does that play out then? Or is it, is the more important factor with kids is that they just have those influences in their life, whether it's a male figure or not? Yeah. And it, you know, obviously, I think your, your primary caregiving system, and especially during those first five years, right? Because certainly when you look at attachment to over the lifespan, it, it changes in terms of um, kind of that drive uh, to feel safe amongst others, which at its core attachment, we're talking about this basic safety system inside of humans where um, you're guessing at your safety based on your relationship with others. At its core, it's a safety system. And so those first five or six years are just so primarily driven to let's figure, let's figure this primary nuclear unit out. And so I think in in certainly for those years, um, it's going to be so important, whether it's a mother, a mother, a father, two fathers, two mothers, whatever it is, I think um regardless of the pushing and pulling, creating safety, creating consistency, creating predictability for kids. Cause that's, you know, we always have this conversation in the work I do of, well, how do I tell my child this? And it's like, you don't, like you don't tell a young child anything, um, anything really important in life. You, you show them, you show them over time by doing it, right? Like you can say, I'm gonna call you every week. Um, that means nothing to them, right? What means something to them is, a year later, if you've called them every week and then their brain's like, oh, this person's going to call me every week. Right? Yeah. That, that's just how their brains work. I feel like too, that predictability is really important when you have a long distance relationship and something I have to work on a lot. And sometimes you have to check in because for it's been a couple of weeks and maybe you haven't been as consistent 
with the conversations on on FaceTime, or maybe you forgot to send the card that you always send at a certain, you know, but being that predictable, that predictability piece, I've, I've been finding is really important um, to maintain secure attachment and to not, because it's easy to check out when you're a distance from your kid, it's easy to check out and know that you're going to see them in a few weeks or a few months and you'll make up time then. But I, I've definitely found that that's really important to, for that secure attachment. Um, so, Hey, there's a, I just thought, just want to read a quote out to you from your, cause I'm interested. Well, I'll read it out and then you can see, we can talk about it. Um, the new nurturant father is committed to the family often at the cost of his own sexuality as is evidenced by research, looking at sexual intimacy post childbirth with many studies noting a decline in sexual frequency. Um, well, first of all, I will say, um, which is very timely because I think it's this week. If it's not this week, it's next week. And I can't quite remember. Um, Tabitha is coming on the show and she is um, a sexual therapist. I knew her years ago. She, and we reconnected um, online talking about the podcast. And yeah, it turns out that's her thing. So she works with couples to work on exactly this issue, which is going to be really interesting because we hear of so many relationships not making it zero to five is so tough on for so many reasons with a kid um it's kind of tough to make it through day to day throw in a kid as well and then a lack of sexual desire and all the rest of it so do you think we are we going to see that are we seeing men more committed to the family unit are we seeing like a lot of confused men yeah it's a hard one to say because it's actually it might be a pretty perfect example of that um, that difficult um, area with a bit of conflict between historical models of masculinity and this this newer fatherhood that's maybe more involved, more engaged, or whatever. Not just purely thinking of themselves, because as it relates to masculinity, uh, you know, one of these, if you look at like Connell's work on on hegemonic masculinities, breaks it down into four different domains. And one of those domains is something called cathexis, which looks at this, um, to, to be a man is to be desired and to be desired a certain way within society, right? And this is, this is part of that um, challenge of, of uh, homosexuality, say to modern masculinity, um, in that, you know, cathexis meant that men were, to be a good man, you were desired by women, right? And, and also that you were having sex with women, right? And that, look at, look at like, as teenagers are becoming men, like, what's the thing that they talk most about as a way of like, proving that they're becoming men, right? It's like dating and having sex and being desired by women. And a, a lot of the, it's, it was so funny to me, like, when you look at say like the hair metal bands of like the late 80s and early 90s because on the surface like these were typically like kind of scrawnier dudes they weren't dudes who had ever thrown a hammer or built something or like all these other sides of like masculinity like these were guys with like long hair wearing leopard tights like these all other aspects of masculinity were not there for them right however however because of the sexual aspect, I believe, you know, you still have like, you know, when you think of like, what's a man's man's music? It's like, well, it's Motley Crue. And it's like, those aren't dudes who have ever built houses. Those are like long haired guys who have worn tights and gotten their nipples pierced. Like they're having sex with a ton of women, which like at the time, like the dominant masculinities were like, we're cool with this. And, and you know, you, you go to any like 
really kind of hegemonically masculine or like dominantly masculine site like go go to like a, a work site up north or whatever and probably a lot of these bands are still like oh yeah the male yeah. the male cream of the crop right um so i think you know coming into fatherhood and yeah absolutely the research shows that i think there's such a readjustment in values in the relationship there's such a shift in energies um people aren't sleeping focus is directed sometimes childbirth can be incredibly traumatic uh on, on a woman's body all of these things are going to have huge uh repercussions as then uh you look at intimacy moving forward past having a kid. And the research is pretty clear that the general pattern appears to be a huge decline in sexuality after having children um, with, with sometimes it bouncing back within a year with sometimes it never bouncing back. Because the other thing about that research is that there's huge variability into it, which I think speaks to more, it was just easier before you had kids. And so couples who were good and are good are probably still going to be good, right? But couples who maybe didn't know they weren't good, um, and then moving forward, that's just going to flush it out. It's the quickest way to get to any outcome, probably. I'm assuming. You know, that's true. Yeah, I've kind of lived both realities there, and that is very, very true. Because you don't know how a human's going to react to the kind of these kind of stresses either, right? Like we know each other is yeah, without a child, but then put in four hours of sleep a night, three hours of sleep for an extended period, plus co-sleeping. People are co-sleeping. It's certainly around here. It's very common yeah. to have your kid in the bed with you. I'm mixed about my feelings around that. I wonder if it's just at some point healthier to get the, you know, the couple back in the same bed together. But, you know, whatever works, as long as everybody's happy with whatever arrangement, I guess. Um, yeah. Hey, man, um, there's so much to talk about with this stuff. Like, honestly, we could, I feel like we could just like, yeah, put another, put the kettle on, have another cup of tea, probably a six pack and just keep going. Um, yeah, I think uh, we got through like a quarter of where I thought we'd get to, but that's okay. <laughs> but hey, chatterboxing. <laughs> no, it's great. Um, so yeah, let me just say for now, thank you so much. And I'm really talk looking forward to talking more about this huge topic about being a dad. And there's so many dads that come on the show with, you know, not an open question necessarily, but like interesting topics and themes keep coming up that it's nice to have, you know, yourself and Todd and Catherine to kind of lean on to get some extra input. Um, so yeah, hoping to do this again. And thank you so much for taking the time today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, please do share and subscribe and leave a rating or an even better, a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Please find us on Facebook and Instagram at Dab Without Borders and a full list of episodes can be found at dabwithoutborders.com. Thanks for supporting the show and we'll see you next time.